0: And we would find that we return to Buddha nature. It's not a matter of creating it or making anything happen. It's really a matter of returning to Buddha nature, to our own true selves, which is there underneath the variety of stories and descriptions and assumptions that we've carried around our whole entire life. So that Buddha nature has become lost, submerged, buried under concepts and thoughts about how things are. Illusionary, not real thoughts about who we are and about how things are. (coughs) As we begin to, as we continue to drop more and more into our experience which is what happens as we practice being mindful, as we allow ourselves to be drawn more deeply inward and to connect more fully with what is, as we begin to cultivate the seeds of awakening and encourage their flowering, we also tend to come face to face with resistance, with, resist- with restlessness, and with despair. So we actually become more aware of inner burdens. We become more aware of a heaviness weighing the heart down. We actually become more aware of our lack of freedom and of the fact that we are more imprisoned than we thought we were, imprisoned without knowing it. Without perspective and understanding, we may may make the error of thinking that we have discovered how things are, that life consists of despair, of restlessness, of resistance. Generally, we come to the practice, and we continue to practice out of some recognition, some sense, of disappointment, things are not the way we were told they were, told they are, out of some degree of uneasiness, out of some degree of sensing ourselves or things as being somewhat incomplete. We may express this to ourselves as wanting ease, but it's the same thing. You know, coming to practice to find some degree of ease But the other way of looking at it is that we need to find a sense of fulfillment, something that is not incomplete. And we may may be aware that things are not as they seem to be. As the practice coaxes us open more and more, and this is what practice does, it coaxes us open, sometimes with a crowbar, But certainly, there is this prying process that occurs. As we open more and more, we actually begin to open more and more to our despair. We may have the illusion or the belief or maybe even just the wish or the hope that practice should always be loving and peaceful in each moment of practice. Practice should feel loving and peaceful. We should feel loving and peaceful. And when it's not, we can easily drift off into doubt, doubt of ourselves, thinking that we're practicing incorrectly or wrongly, that something is wrong. We can also doubt the practice itself, that there actually is a path. We can wonder, is there a path? Is it worth it to sit here and suffer so much? Is there really a path that we're on? The fact is that transformation and despair oftentimes go hand in hand. They go together. And as we open and connect more fully with our actual actual experiences, we may meet not only the suffering that arises because of events in life, But what might be called a more essential suffering, or what is known of as dukkha, a more essential dukkha? There are so many reasons for our experiencing suffering or dukkha in life. But essential dukkha, essential suffering, is beyond reasons, beyond circumstances. We can experience a fear of opening and being afraid that we'll find nothing, kind of a fear of the hollow heart, you know, that if we keep on practicing, we'll find that the heart is actually not full, not what the books have told us, not what other people have told us, but that we'll find out that our hearts are actually empty, hollow, void, that nothing is actually there. And we may be afraid that we'll find ourselves lost, and we'll find that there is actually no meaning in life. We may fear that we'll be endlessly tossed around by confusion, by fear, and by doubt. Meditation invites us into this cave of hollowness. It actually is an invitation into the exploration of this cape of the hollow heart. In opening more and more, we are given the chance to make peace with it, to not be so afraid, to not be so intimidated by what we think we'll find, but instead to make peace and to discover an inner confidence. We do discover invaluable resources and invaluable strength that is less bound by circumstances? Will we find ourselves more available in life, more available to ourselves, more available to this world that so sorely needs each one of us to be available, more of benefit, more able to serve, more able to truly serve? And we begin, and this is a huge discovery, we begin to realize that despair is a phase. It's a phase in practice. It's not a permanent residence. Rilke said, be ahead of all parting, as though it already were behind you, like the winter that has just gone by. For among these winters, there is one so endlessly winter that only by wintering through it will your heart survive. Be ahead of all parting as though it already were behind you like the winter that has just gone by. For among these winters there is one so endlessly winter that only by wintering through it will your heart survive." So there is this experiencing and then regeneration of the heart and release of the heart's burdens that is an actuality on the path. This is why we practice. What I'd like to do is to speak about the seven factors of enlightenment, those factors that are within each one of us, just describing each one. There are three arousing factors, and there are three calming factors, and then there is mindfulness. The three arousing factors include investigation, energy, and joy. The three calming factors involve calm, or tranquility, equanimity, and concentration. And then there is mindfulness which balances and encourages the development and the cultivation of the other six. So I'm going to start by speaking a little bit about mindfulness. Mindfulness is the capacity in our life to notice what's happening from moment to moment. It's being awake to our experience instead of being dull or sleepy or ignoring what's happening. So when we're mindful, we're here. We're present. We're sensitive and receptive and able to sense what's occurring in our life in the present moment. When we're mindful, we're present. We're here. We can't be mindful about something in the past, or um, plan to be mindful about something in the future? I mean, we can. We certainly can try and do our best. But it's not really mindfulness. We can be mindful of a thought about the past. Absolutely, definitely. We can be mindful of planning about the future. But how much of our time do we plan to be mindful? You know, in the next sitting, or tomorrow, or, In our life, I'm going to be mindful. Well, so what? (laughs) What is happening right here and now? If we can be mindful of that, that's great. We're back in it again. You can never lose with this practice. You can never um, blow it or fail, because always there's a fresh chance. One sees, oh, I've been lost in planning or I've been lost in feeling bad because I haven't been mindful for the past 50 years. It, It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter because right here and now, one has the chance to be here. And this is the only place we can truly be. The rest of it is a trick of the mind. It's really just the mind over and over again, tricking us into thinking that we can go back into the past. And fix or change things. You know, tricking us into thinking that we do have control over the future. And when we practice simply resting, relaxing into the present moment, these tricks of the mind begin to clear away. And we find that we can be in love, actually, here and now. The Buddha said, Do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the yogi dwells in stability and freedom. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the yogi dwells in stability and freedom. Mindfulness is being intimate with all of our experiences. No, it's not being separate from. It's a nonverbal or preverbal, um, non judgmental attentiveness. So we can't be mindful while at the same time we're judging our experience. They conflict. If we're aware of judgment, that's great. We're mindful once again. But we can't be mindful while we're caught in trying to push our experiences away. One definition of mindfulness is whenever there is a moment of not pushing anything away, not holding onto or grasping onto any part of our experience, and not identifying with our experiences as being who we are, that in and of itself if we just did that would be only liberating, you know. Two if you just look at your day today and what arose and how many mind states occurred and how many emotions and this is how I am, this is who I am, this is how things are. You know, from moment to moment this identification with the contents of consciousness. Mindfulness is recognizing that we don't have to identify that it is possible to let go of this habit of defining ourselves through the experiences that are occurring, and instead allow ourselves to see things as they are, which is a mind state as a mind state, an emotion as an emotion, the worst of thoughts as just a thought, the best of thoughts as just a thought, not Getting so stuck onto the content, but instead allowing experiences to come and go and to know them as they pass through. One of the great functions of mindfulness is that it deconditions the mind. And, you know, sometimes we don't have a great deal of faith in this. But sometimes we do. We can see it for ourselves. That the practice, you could say, has to do with the conscious mind rubbing against the unconscious mind (coughs) and making that which is unconscious, conscious. And so something that we don't have to be afraid of any longer or angry about or upset about. But instead, more and more ease, more and more peace entering in so every moment that we're mindful, there is, whether we can see it in the moment or not, there is a deconditioning taking place. By deconditioning, what I mean is that we're letting go of conditioning. We're letting go of the tricks of the mind, of how we've always thought things to be. Second, arousing quality of heart or factor of awakening is that of investigation. And investigation is that sense of questioning, of illuminating whatever we bring our attention to, with a great deal of inquisitiveness. One of the best definitions that I've heard for this is something that Ajahn Sumedho said. Many of you know him as a really wonderful teacher. He calls investigation affectionate curiosity, which I think is just great. You know? It's a curiosity, but you know how when somebody asks you about something, and you know they're just curious. They don't really care about you. They're just <laughs> curious. You know? it, doesn't, it doesn't feel so great. It's not very warm. You know? But to bring the affection is, in is a whole other story. You know? It retains that sense of wanting to know. But it's not wanting to know just to feed the gossipy mind. You know, it's wanting to know because of something deeper, because of, of love, because of warmth, because of real affection. And so this is a quality that we can bring into our practice, that it is really possible for us to bring into our practice. Of course, this is a quality that children seem to have in great abundance. Which is sometimes why um, some of us are drawn to being around children, is because that quality of investigation is so strong. Sometimes, if you follow a child, you know, kind of through their life, and as those of you who are parents really know this, you can see sometimes that investigation is much stronger when the child is really small. And then something sometimes changes adolescence, you know, no investigation possible (laughs) and then (laughs) and then hopefully it kicks in again you know if they um, want something deeper in life but that that sense is so compelling when when you're with a child that sense of really not knowing and delighting in not knowing you know not thinking that one has to know for any given reason but really kind of delighting and appreciating not knowing, and then drawing us into this as adults. I was in a museum uh, some time ago, many years ago. And I was walking around looking at the pictures (coughs) in the museum. And I have to admit, the pictures were not all that interesting. But people were walking around, we all were trying to look interested (laughs) at these pictures. And I turned around, and I noticed this really tiny child in the middle of the museum. Uh, this museum had a, a floor to it, obviously. And then it had a one step, and then it had another floor. And so the pictures were throughout both floors, but just a very small step. And I observed this child just you know, jumping on the step, jumping off the step, licking the step, <laughs> smelling the step, listening to the step all senses being engaged about this step, totally absorbed and interested in this step. You know, it made me want to come over and check out the step. And when I did, obviously, it was just a step. But to this child, it was so much more than that. It was a real world to be explored and to be interested in, to be examined, and to be delighted by. When there is real investigation, There really is a sense of delight, because we're not as caught by what's happening. We're interested. Interest is taking the place of being caught. When we're investigating, it allows us to drop the roles that sometimes we take on in life. I have to be like this right now. I'm this kind of a person. I'm that kind of a person. I have to be like this in this context. All the different rules and regulations that sometimes were not even appropriate in certain situations, but we think we have to follow a certain rule or a certain regulation. When there's investigation, we can find out for ourselves what is skillful and what is not. We don't have to change ourselves to suit circumstances or events, there's a certain steadiness there and stability when there is interest and investigation. And we can bring this quality to our relationships as well, and it bodes well when we do. I want to read you something by Samuel Goldman, who was 92 when he wrote this. I have a friend, a woman I already know many years. One day she is mad at me. From nowhere it comes. I have insulted her, she tells me. How? I don't know. Why don't I know? Because I don't know her. She surprised me. That's good. That is how it should be. You cannot tell someone, I know you. People jump around. They are like a ball, rubbery. They bounce. A ball cannot be long in one place. Rubbery, it must jump. So what do you do to keep a person from jumping? The same as with a ball. You take a pin and stick it in, make a little hole. It goes flat. When you tell someone, I know you, you put a little pin in. So what should you do? Leave them be. Don't try to make them stand still for your convenience. You don't ever know them. Let people surprise you. This likewise you could do concerning yourself. (laughs) All this I didn't read in any book. It is my own invention. Mm. This is really a wonderful quality to bring into relationship. Instead of pinning people down, I know how you are. I know you. You are like this. You are like that. To offer that openness is really an offering of love. And perhaps it's true we can do that to ourselves right now. Instead of confining ourselves, I am like this, I am like that, can we offer ourselves that freedom, that freedom to be, that freedom to change from moment to moment? With investigation, there is a willingness to look deeply at whatever it is that's occurring instead of losing ourselves in a sense of blind reactivity. We allow ourselves to go beyond appearances, how things appear to be, how things look. And instead of being as overwhelmed by the fearful, we can investigate. Instead of being as excited or blinded by the attractive, we can investigate. Instead of being as deluded by the seemingly insignificant, which often turns out to be quite significant, we can investigate. We are blessed, each one of us, with minds that have the capacity to reflect, that have the capacity to observe and to investigate. And this is such a great thing to have. It's just something that we need to cultivate more. It's there to be cultivated. So what this means is that it is possible to observe instead of to react to our anger, our jealousy, our self-doubt, our anxiety, our loneliness. It is possible to stay still in the middle of it and to bring this sense of affectionate curiosity. When we find ourselves really askew and caught in the middle of something, We can see it. We can notice what's happening. With a sense of acceptance and a long, enduring mind, we can see its temporary nature. And this is possible for each one of us to see that everything comes and everything goes, that the worst of mind states comes and goes. It has a life. And it is subject to impermanence. When we free ourselves from our narrow, tense identity with the various mind states that arise, we find that it's a little bit more possible to relax. And in that relaxation, to experience our true nature, which is luminous and clear and bright. Energy is the next of the arousing factors. And of course, this is a sense of wakefulness or alertness and sensitivity. (coughs) Mindfulness and investigation allow for the release of energy. So when you bring mindfulness together with this affectionate curiosity, there is more energy available to us. This is why sometimes, (coughs) because we're practicing mindfulness and the encouraging of investigation. This is why sometimes, and this is not to say for everyone, but sometimes on retreats one needs less sleep. Sometimes, of course, on retreats one needs more sleep because of not having gotten enough sleep before you got here. But sometimes as the retreat goes on, moves on, one finds naturally that we wake up a little bit more It's a a natural development that occurs. Because over and over again, we are letting go of the unnecessary. Thinking so much about unnecessary things makes us quite exhausted, really tired. And so to be in an environment where we're actually being encouraged to let go of the unnecessary releases energy, and reconnects us to an endless energy within that is available to us. There's something that um, could be called dharma energy, which means that even if you're really tired, or um, things aren't going well, or you're sick, or uh, something is happening, there's still an energy that one can connect to, that one can um, really feel that's not so much physical. That is a dharma energy. And this is what can be maintained, whatever the conditions of the body or the mind are. By the mind, I mean whatever state of mind is occurring. This energy can still be operating. Effort brings about energy. This effort, of course, being the effort to be mindful to over and over again turn towards the present moment instead of turning away into fantasy and worry and anxiety, but instead the commitment to turn towards the present moment. It's important, I think, to recognize, this is kind of along the lines of a helpful hint, it's, I think, quite helpful to recognize that One doesn't have to feel like practicing in order to practice. Mm -hmm. Because we can be so enslaved and caught by thinking that unless we feel like sitting the next sitting, or walking the next walking, unless we have enthusiasm for it, or we're cheerful, or we feel like it, um, that we can't do it. And it's so liberating to recognize that we can. That actually, if we continue with the practice, if we continue with the sitting, whether we feel like it or not, if we continue with the walking, whether we feel like it or not, it will bring about energy. And so to let go of that sense of always having to feel like it. I remember on some retreats, uh, deliberately, sometimes, of course, as older yogis know, one deliberately tries to cut down on one's sleep particular times and i practiced in this way for quite a long time and so i would get up really early and hadn't had a whole lot of sleep before getting up so you know obviously i was really tired so i began this by waking up and i would ask this question i would say okay do you want to get up right now and who would want to get up? Yeah, I mean, the immediate answer was, you fool. Mm-hmm. Of course you don't want to get up. And so then I would go back to sleep. Whereas when I stopped asking the question, I just got up. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then I was OK once I was up. Yeah. It was a whole different story once I actually got out of bed. But to ask the question, do you feel like it? Well, you know, of course I don't feel like it. Who would? Mm. To work with energy doesn't mean at all to bring harshness or strain or struggle into one's practice. At times we may feel quite disheartened or disillusioned and wonder why we even began to practice in particular moments. In any retreat there are moments of real excitement and faith and confidence and then there are moments where we Don't feel that way at all. And to hold every moment as part of practice is really what's important. It's really natural to get disheartened at times and to lose a little bit of faith, because it's kind of like swimming for a long time and getting tired. You have to pull over to the side and take a little bit of a rest. So what's important is, while resting, to keep practicing, to not stop practicing but just to relax more, to see if there's straining occurring, and to learn about when it's necessary to stretch and really good to push the limits of what we think we can do, and when it's really necessary to settle back and to relax. And this has to do with self-education. Nobody can tell you. You have to really discover this for yourself. It's an art the art of effort. And it's a very beautiful art to continue to learn. We do want to look at our relationship to energy, which is, you know, do I measure it out as if it's like with an eyedropper? You know, just I'll be, um, I have enough energy to do this sitting if I don't do the next sitting. <laughs> um, I can stay up a little bit right now if I don't get up at this time in the morning. You know, kind of this sense of overly planning the retreat. On the other hand, there can be a really a constant tension from trying too hard. You know, where the brow is really constantly furrowed. And this can be an attitude, a stance. This is how one always practices. To find out for oneself one's rel- relationship to effort is really necessary in terms of cultivating this factor of awakening. The next arousing factor is that of joy. And sometimes, particularly for those of you who are new, there can be this great relief of knowing that it's actually an obligation, that you can't wake up unless there is joy. Well, it's actually one of the qualities of awakening that you can't do without. You can't have the rest of the six and leave out joy and you know think that you'll wake up. There can be a mistake that one makes, which has to do with equating spiritual practice with some degree of self-punishment. And this practice is clearly a path of joy. Any path of wisdom is a path of joy, because the result of wisdom is a life of joy. We can sometimes find ourselves stuck on what is known of as the first noble truth, the the truth of dukkha, the truth of suffering. And forget that actually the, pr- the Buddha moved on. No, there were, f- there were four. And the first is truly only the first. And the third is where the good news comes in, uh, that there is cessation. There is a release from suffering as well. So not spiritual practice to simply practice the first. No, spiritual practice to acknowledge the first and to continue to practice until we see the third. Ajahn Chah, a teacher who died but was a meditation master in Thailand, um, speaks about one having to pick burdens up in order to discover how heavy they are to be motivated to put them down. And this is, this is where some joy comes from. You know, is the willingness to pick up the burdens, recognize their burdensome quality, and then that relief and ease in joy in letting them go, in putting them down. When we let go, there is lightness, there is joy. What is meant by joy is not pleasure, though. And, of course, nothing wrong with pleasure. You know, to connect with pleasure is something that happens more in practice to open to pleasure as much as we're opening to pain. And joy is very different than pleasure in that pleasure is impermanent. And it's dependent on conditions coming together. That sometimes we desperately try to make come together so that we'll get a little bit of pleasure. But joy is something quite different. Joy doesn't have to do with conditions doesn't have to do with circumstances. It stands on its own. It's an inner, liberated quality of heart. When we live in concepts, in ideas, in simply the life of thought, life is so boring and so without any degree of joy. When we're willing to step out of our concepts and belief systems and assumptions, about how things are, we find that life is constantly interesting. It's one of those things that happens in practice is that boredom really is not a permanent state of affairs. Because in, a, in its place comes this interest in life, whether things are going the way we want to or not, whether they're joyful or, or pleasant or not pleasant. So we can nurture contentment, ease, lightness of heart. Sometimes, particularly during a time like, like now in the world where uh, there is so much obvious suffering, there always has been so, but right now with the world in such chaos, there can be some question or some, gu- some guilt. You know, can I feel joy while other people are not? And let me just read you something from the Dhammapada. Live in, these are instructions about joy from the Dhammapada, from the Buddha. Live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. And Mother Teresa used to tell her nuns to not only smile when working with the poorest of the poor, but to cultivate joy, to actually feel joyful, to see it as an obligation in life. And the Buddha would say the same, that to know joy for ourselves is offering joy to this world. It's not self-centered. It's offering There are three calming qualities of heart as well and these three calming qualities include calm and concentration and equanimity. Calm, the first one, one can maybe use an image of a still body of water that is not being agitated by the wind or by by the weather in any way, a still body of water. This is brought about oftentimes by a sense of perspective and understanding, where we are less moved by the changes in life, by um, success and failure, or by praise and blame, where there's a cushioning, an inner cushioning, and maybe we don't take Things like success and failure and praise and blame quite as seriously, because praise and blame are always going to happen to us. Um, Some years ago, 15 years ago, um, the center that I teach in on a regular basis, the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, there was a write-up about it in The Globe, which is the the newspaper in Boston. And the photographer took a picture of me and the other teacher in the center, Larry Rosenberg. So you know, he had us sitting there, looking peaceful. You know, (laughs) this picture of us (laughs) meditating. These are people meditating. (laughs) 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 And I went that morning. The paper came out. I went to this convenience store where I often went, and I would say hi to the people in the convenience store. You know, people behind the counter, but Um, they changed, the people changed a lot, so I didn't really feel like I knew anybody. But this morning, I went in, the morning that the paper came out, I went into this convenience store, and I went in to get some milk. So I went over to the freezing department, freezer department, and I opened the door, and this disembodied voice from way in the back said, hey, nice picture there. (laughs) in the glow. It was really, you know, slam. <laughs> and then I went back to the center, and I bumped into someone in the center. And she looked at me, and paper had just came out, and she looked at me, and she said, Oh, you must have been so tired and sick that day. <laughs> it was really um, perfect, actually. <clears throat> A few years when I was teaching here, I had this experience of getting two notes on my clipboard. And the two notes were together. You know, one was on top of the other one. And the first note said, Dear teachers, would you please try to not talk so much in the hall? <laughs> so, you know, <clears throat> <clears throat> However, the next note said... Dear teachers, would you please try to talk more in the hall? (laughs) What's a teacher to do? (laughs) I mean, since then, I've always just decided to do what I want. (laughs) But this kind of thing happens all the time. That was an interesting thing because it was just together. But um, always people having different opinions happening. And so can calm be there as a strengthening factor. So we're not quite as pushed around or swayed by views and opinions of others, living less in our likes and our dislikes, less in our regrets and our plans and our preferences, allowing there to be a little bit less of the agitation of judgments and ideas about things, letting go of the futile urge to control life because it cannot be controlled. We might just even notice this in exploring the breath. How much do we want to control the breath? Have a perfect in-breath, whatever that means. Have an ideal out-breath, you know, whatever that means. Underlining whatever that means. But trying to control that which actually wasn't a problem before one heard that <laughs> being with the breath was a good thing. You know, kind of a new, a new kind of suffering arising. (laughs) And instead, relating to each moment with openness, we can find an enormous power in calm, an enormous power in calm that each one of us has the capacity to touch, sensing the heart at rest, not bouncing around. One way we can cultivate calm is by doing just one thing at a time. And of course, in this environment, there's no excuse not to. (laughs) So whatever it is that we're doing, can we put Mm -hmm. our shoes on, just one shoe at a time, one foot at a time, fully just putting our foot in our shoe? Can we walk just walking without agendas and plans? When we're eating, can we just eat? Can we do whatever we're doing fully? Because this will bring about calm. And another just little little hint has to do with resting with imperfection. Uh, resting with our own imperfections, resting with the imperfections of others. Sometimes on retreats there can be this real tendency to, you know, notice what IMS is doing wrong. You know? And resting, although we're happy and we're, you know, we're delighted in this and that, it can be really a nice way to distract the mind. So Resting with imperfection is really a wonderful way to bring about calm. Concentration is another of the calming. And this is the ability of the mind to stay on an object, whatever object we want to stay on. So it's a one-pointedness of mind, being steady without wavering. The image of this is a candle lit with no wind where there's a collecting and a harmonizing of the mind, where the mind is disentangled from its usual complexities, allowing for a gentle subsiding of our addiction to describing, our addiction to rehearsing life before it happens. Concentration is a fullness of heart. And when there is even just a little bit, it's a great thing. Even just a little bit, because when there is a little bit of concentration, there's a little bit of fullness in the heart. And with that fullness, we begin to see that there's an independent source of contentment. That things do not always have to bring us contentment from outside of ourselves. That's what happens when there is any degree of concentration. There is this inner contentment, this inner fullness of heart. Equanimity is an inner balance or a steadiness of mind, a steadiness of heart within the enormous ups and downs in life. It's being willing to experience what are known as the 10,000 sorrows and the 10,000 joys, and to stay still and steady in the midst of it all. I had a teacher named Tara Tolko who talked about equanimity as perceiving everything as being equally near. Now, Sometimes we think of equanimity as standing a little bit apart from things and staying steady at all costs. But this sense of equally near to everything, to me that brings about the requirement of open heartedness. You know, that there needs to be within equanimity, not a movement away from feeling, a fullness of feeling, not being intimidated by our emotions, by our feelings, and at the same time staying steady in the midst of it all, not taking sides, not swaying from one side to another side, but staying in the center while everything comes and everything goes. But if we stand apart and think that equanimity is a disinterest or an indifference or a coolness or a withdrawal, endlessly we will be intimidated by what is happening inwardly. It's inevitable. There will always be a way in which we're holding ourselves apart. Whereas true equanimity is hard won. Well, it comes through experiencing great sorrow and staying as still as we possibly can, not with any degree of perfection or ideal about it. Staying as quiet and as still and as open as we possibly can in the midst of it. Experiencing great times of pleasure great times of excitement, great times when things are going really well, and staying still and steady in the midst of it, not being as overwhelmed as we might be if we weren't cultivating equanimity. So allowing ourselves to be totally tender and open-hearted and vulnerable, and at the same time, steady, fully present, none of these factors or qualities of heart need to be accumulated we don't need to accumulate them and then we'll kind of pop out into Buddha nature at some point they are seeds within that so far up till now haven't been fully realized or cooked so these seeds need to be nurtured they need to be watered They need to be fertilized. They need to be tended to. And you could say tending to these seeds means attending to them, valuing these qualities of heart. Every time we value something, it gets stronger. Whether it's something that is going to bring us grief, if we value it, it will get stronger. Whereas if we value um, qualities of heart such as these, these qualities inevitably get stronger if we appreciate them, if we bring our attention more and more to the cultivation of these qualities. The discovery of these seven qualities does require effort. Structure and form really encourage their discovery. And the structure and form in this context has already been taken care of. Now we fall into a structure and a form that people have practiced with for many, many years. We fall into it. We're part of something when we practice in this way. And so, inevitably, the effort is occurring that allows us to cultivate these seven qualities of heart. When we sit a retreat, we step outside of our normal context, into a space of receptivity. And we use this space of receptivity to allow these qualities to bloom and mature within. The sitting looks passive, but it's actually enormously empowering. Just to sit is enormously empowering. Someone may look at you and say, well, what are they actually doing? What are they creating? What are they making? Aren't they doing anything? And in actuality, One is becoming who one already is. There is a revealing of true nature through the empowering of the sitting. So we can use these qualities to guide our practice, not by uh, getting caught up in evaluating and assessing or anything like that, but as a way to look honestly at oneself. Honestly noticing what is strong, what is already awake, Because there are qualities in each one of us that are already very strong and awake. What needs a little bit more attention? What could I actually take up and bring more attention to? For beginning students, as well as very old students, there is a continuing unfolding. And the direction of this unfolding is toward peace and away from despair. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have comfort of heart. May all beings live in love and in compassion. Let's just sit for a moment or two. Do not pursue the past, do not lose yourself in the future, the past no longer is, the future has not yet come, looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the yogini and yogi dwell in stability and freedom.